Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 2.2. Last time, we began our second phase of 1956 by introducing the French crisis in Algeria, which was only truly beginning as 1955 became 1956. Great and grave events were still to come in Algeria for the French, but let's leave a pin in that theatre for the moment and take this episode to examine the angle of the other significant player in the Suez Crisis, Britain. 
Britain is a strange and complicated animal to understand in the 1950s, as we'll learn. While she had relinquished her hold over India and other former colonies, such as the Sudan, she retained other colonies with a passionate tenacity. The legacy of white settlement in Kenya, for example, warranted great British investment in the region during the emergence of the Mau Mau insurgency in the early 1950s. Interestingly, this is where the parallels of the French and British experiences ended, because unlike the Algerian case, the British seemed to have settled the Kenyan troubles by mid to late October 1956, just as it was becoming apparent that British attentions were being heavily spent elsewhere. Of course, we're not here to talk about Kenya, we're here instead to present the British Empire or Commonwealth of the mid-1950s to you guys, so that we understand first what the Suez Canal meant to Britain, and second, why the British felt compelled to launch a military intervention in the region in the early hours of the 6th of November. This latter question contains too many layers to be adequately answered in a single episode, but we can certainly set a great deal of background information down here, so let's get down to it. Without any further ado, I will now take you to the British experience of 1956 through what you could call the scenic route. But before I do that, I would like to let you know that this latest episode of 1956 is brought to you by, imagine that, 1956. That's right, for a fiver a month, the same price as that coffee that Starbucks didn't even really make properly, or that sandwich that you really thought could have been better considering the price, or just those coins jingling round in your pocket that you're just so rich you just haven't even bothered to take out. Yes, indeed, $5 is all it takes to access all 20 episodes of The Suez Crisis, in addition to the other 15 episodes of 1956. 35 episodes of 1956 await, and all you have to do is give me your money. Just give me everything you own. (laughs) No, seriously, $5 a month is all it takes, and once you do that, you'll be well set up to access the best of what When Diplomacy Fails has to offer. My life is getting very exciting at the moment. I'm going to be jetting off to Harvard in November, and I'm applying to Cambridge to start the Masters, then the PhD program, which I will explain in more detail in the near future. But yes, it's all a very exciting time. And in the meantime, running in the background is when diplomacy fails. Because of the support I've received from you guys, both monetarily and morally, I'm able to basically do this investment in this podcast now, which will serve me well into the future. By getting the Patreon as high as we can, I will be as secure as possible to run this podcast, no matter what happens to Zach Twomley or his plans for the future. 1956 is the latest special series. It's been running since the start of January, and it has much steam left in it. So if you'd like to tap into this extra hour of content every month, if you really can't get enough of me, and if you would like to know where the Suez stuff all ends up, then be sure to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, guys. It only takes a sec, even if you just are curious and you want to see what the story is. You can follow the link in the description below, as always, and you will receive my utmost thanks for doing so. Without any further ado, let's do further. Ismail Pasha was on top form. This was his party. It was designed specifically to highlight all that was opulent and progressive in his Egyptian Khedive. 
Pasha had a right to enjoy himself, since he had, after all, paid all of the 6,000 guests' expenses and prepared sufficient provisions to ensure that those who simply turned up would also be accommodated for. Ismail Pasha had never been one to save money. A receipt for £10,000 worth of black French velvet as a present to his daughter attests to this fact. Yet, even the spend-happy Pasha had outdone himself, and this was necessary, he believed, to attract the calibre of guests that he wanted to celebrate this auspicious occasion with in his reign. Since inheriting the role from his uncle six years earlier, he had wholeheartedly cooperated with the French authorities and moved heaven and earth, literally to an extent, to ensure that the Suez Canal was completed. Here, on the 17th of November, 1869, was the vindication of all these efforts, all that money spent, and all that foreign cooperation endured. The moment that the Suez Canal was opened, a flotilla bearing international flags moved through and stopped at the key points along Port Said, Port Ibrahim, and Ismailia, where they were greeted by several more displays of opulence and luxury on a grand scale. Ismail had hoped for guests from all across the world, and even to reorientate the centre of gravity in the Ottoman Empire from Constantinople to Cairo. For a variety of reasons, this last wish would not be realised, but Ismail could at least take solace from the presence of Empress Eugenie of the Second French Empire. Her husband, Napoleon III, the Emperor of France, may have decided to stay at home to avoid offending the British, but Eugenie's radiance brought a kind of quality and class to the proceedings, which it wouldn't have done otherwise. Alongside Eugenie strolled, on occasion, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, who had been advised to journey to Egypt to ensure that no Prussian king managed to wrest any kind of credit from this occasion. Back home in Europe, Prussia's Chancellor and Foreign Minister Otto von Bismarck was preoccupied with far more important things in his mind than paying lip service to an Egyptian ruffian. The Iron Chancellor wasn't the only figure to avoid making much effort to represent his country. Notably absent during the festivities was any sign of a Union Jack. The British, it seemed, had missed the boat on this glorious opportunity, and those British citizens who did take part in the revelry did so somewhat begrudgingly. It seemed difficult for them to accept that this was, in the first place, a victory for French connections, enterprise, and above all, capital. While the celebrations continued long into the night, and it seemed by all accounts to be a joyous, highly satisfactory occasion for Ismail Pasha, the reality was a touch more fragile. For one, the Suez Canal was not yet finished, even while it had cost over £18 million by 1869, and was over budget by more than 100%. The canal may have been an impressive feat on paper, but in practice, in the words of one historian, the waterway represented a one-way railway and required passing stations. Ports and harbours at the different points had yet to be built. The canal's width and depth would have to be expanded, and all of these activities would require more money. The Suez Canal Company, which Ismail Pasha possessed a 44% stock in, would need greater economic support from Egypt and France if these improvements were to be made. Perhaps, considering these bare facts, the celebrations in mid-November were a bit premature. Ismail Pasha didn't dwell for too long on such problems, because he was confident that the French would continue to finance the canal's expansion, and he was banking on the canal 
bringing his regime a great deal of wealth. Consider it a return on his sizable investment. Ismail Pasha was nothing if not optimistic, and he was also youthful, progressive, and determined to put Egypt on the map. The Suez Canal was the first step, but before November was out, Pasha had had the first of many intense disagreements with his creditors. The international lending bodies, which had helped him finance the canal, were looking for their money back, which he had promised after all once the canal was built. Now Pasha found, to his surprise and disgust, that the Suez Canal was far from the guaranteed return which he had led himself to believe. He sank further into debt, as his extended family continued to keep up appearances and act as though nothing was amiss. Pasha refrained from panicking, owing to the one trump card he believed he still held. The French emperor would never let his Egyptian investment crumble, nor could he afford to allow his Egyptian ally to become unseated and perhaps be replaced by less accommodating ruler. This may well have been an accurate line of thinking to abide by, but what Pasha could not have known was that the celebrations of November 1869 represented something of an epoch in world affairs. Empress Eugenie may have been a radiant embodiment of French power and economic might, but a quick conversation with that other European figure, Franz Josef, would have revealed how quickly affairs could change. If Pasha had troubled himself with the question of why the Habsburg Emperor appeared so downcast, then he may have discovered something profoundly unsettling, that preconceived ideas and that the status quo could change in the blink of an eye. Franz Josef's blink in this case had been the Battle of Sadova, or Sadoa, three years earlier in 1866, where in the space of a few hours, the Habsburg military preponderance over the German states had been definitively crushed by the Kingdom of Prussia. Shortly after, this humiliation was followed by crisis as the Hungarians launched their bid for self-determination. The only solution in the Emperor's mind was a compromise. Austria, as a unitary state, ceased to be, and it was superseded by Austria-Hungary, a dual monarchy wherein both Austrians and Hungarians would have equal say. It had been a shattering experience, all in all, for the Habsburg Emperor, but few could have imagined at that time that a similar experience awaited the radiant Eugenie. As we know, Ismail Pasha's plans went up in flames the moment that the Franco-Prussian War erupted, only a few months after this splendid meeting took place, in July 1870, and thereafter shocked the world by extinguishing forever French military supremacy in Europe. Prussia became the German Empire, and the knock-on effects were on such a scale thousands of miles away in Egypt that Ismail Pasha saw his plans crumble into dust. Napoleon III and the lovely Eugenie were gone, replaced by a French Republican government which didn't want to know about the Khedive's economic woes. Paris, by that stage, had more than enough to occupy herself with, namely a whopper indemnity imposed upon her by Otto von Bismarck's triumphant German Empire, proclaimed humiliatingly at Louis XIV's Versailles Palace. Ismail Pasha was despondent, his bills and debts were becoming mountainous, and the canal continued to demand more and more work and investment. The French administrators of the Suez Canal Company, advised from Paris, chose to hold off from spending for the moment while the crisis persisted back home. Now all the Khedive had was a large minority share in a company which appeared to be static. There seemed only one solution to solve the problem of his debts, 
and remove the canal company-sized albatross from around his neck. He would have to sell his shares to the highest bidder. The man who was responsible above all for purchasing this albatross and putting Ismail Pasha out of his misery was the same individual who had once called the canal a most futile attempt and totally unlikely to be carried out. By 1875, though, this man was Britain's Prime Minister and he had engineered one of the most strikingly opportunistic transactions of the 19th century. His name was, of course, Benjamin Disraeli, and thanks to his contacts with the Rothschild banking syndicates, he was able to raise the necessary sum of £4 million, equivalent to about £89 million in 2018 money, to purchase Ismail Pasha literally out of his misery. The coup was initiated by Disraeli, it had the tacit backing of Queen Victoria, and it was later lambasted by William Gladstone as an example of his rival's unscrupulous dealings, which had gone behind the back of Parliament. Disraeli, and probably also Gladstone deep down, knew that to have appealed to Parliament would have taken far too long. This back-channel deal provided Britain overnight with the second greatest share in the French Suez Canal Company, behind only the French themselves. The six years between the opening of the canal and Disraeli's purchase of its 44% share had seen great changes take place in world markets. Several panics developed as the great powers changed the way that they conducted trade, and speculators tried to guess what would happen next. Thousands of miles away, compounding this shortening of the world, the United States' government had completed its first transcontinental railway in late 1869. The world was getting smaller just as the imperial ambitions of the great powers began to increase and the scramble for Africa set in. Disraeli would be British Prime Minister until 1879, whereupon Gladstone would replace him. Contrary to the Liberal Prime Minister's protestations, it would be under Gladstone's government in the early 1880s that British control over not merely the Suez Canal, but also Egypt itself would be solidified. Another individual who had his expectations dashed was Ismail Pasha, who couldn't pay off his debts even with the £4 million that Disraeli had given him. The situation was delicate, as the British and French devised a commission to consolidate and then pay off the Khedive's debts. The solution was devised in the mid-1870s, once it was accepted that the canal and Egypt itself were too important to allow to sink into bankruptcy. The creeping European interest and activity in Egypt only escalated from this point. With the French focusing on matters closer to home, the British began to carry the lion's share of the administrative and economic responsibilities of the company, and before long the British were operating with the French determinedly in the background. Pushing the French out of the Suez Company was made easier when in September 1882, under the guise of putting down a revolt against the lawful Khedive of Egypt, that is, Ismail Pasha's son, the British defeated the limited nationalist Egyptian opposition and settled into what would be a long and immensely profitable occupation of the country. Gladstone had initially been horrified at the exercise, but he gradually came to accept it as a necessity for safeguarding British interests in the canal and then further afield in India. It was remarkable to see the way in which British political think tanks changed their views on the once reckless and impossible Suez Canal. By the early 1880s, both Egypt and the Canal had become as integral a part in the security and prosperity of the empire as India or the Dominions. 
In spite of the restrictions placed upon the British share in the company and the French majority ownership, the very fact that four-fifths of the traffic which passed through was British and that the British held the port of Aden on the far side of the Red Sea guaranteed that the British would retain a degree of influence in the canal far at odds with their paper ownership of the country. By 1895, when the British were able to partake in voting processes within the canal company, their share was worth nearly £700,000. By 1914, it was worth £40 million. During the two world wars, British interests necessitated a strong defence of Egypt and the Suez Canal. Little wonder that the Ottoman enemy in World War I attacked the region, or that Erwin Rommel's German legions so spooked German strategists during that accomplished Marshall's quest to rush to Egypt. Suez, it is fair to say, remained the linchpin of the British Empire right up to the point that, in July 1956, a disturbing message was received in London. In public speech at Alexandria tonight, Nasser announced that Egypt would build Aswan Dam from her own resources. Funds would be obtained from operation of Suez Canal. Law nationalising canal and expropriating canal company was approved by Egyptian cabinet this morning. Text as read out by Nasser follows. Police have just been posted round canal company's Cairo office. This memo, sent by the panicked embassy head in Cairo to London's Foreign Office, was received at 9.45pm in the evening of the 26th of July 1956. As the memo suggests, more was going on here than a simple decision by Colonel Nasser to nationalise the Suez Canal for his own ends. In the years before, agreements had been made between the Egyptian government and Anglo-Americans to finance the construction of an Aswan Dam, which was a massive enterprise that would be installed across the Upper Nile, which would, everyone hoped, prevent and control the kind of seasonal flooding which had so determined Egyptian life for thousands of years. The Anglo-American refusal to support the dam in the end compelled Nasser to nationalise the Suez Company and use its profits to build the dam himself. To take our story back a bit, the construction of the dam had in fact been a prominent feature and a demand of the July 23rd Revolution, where on that date in 1952, King Farouk of Egypt was forced to abdicate by a nationalist, modernising group of Egyptian army officers, led by several generals and colonels including Gamal Abdel Nasser. One of Nasser's peers, who would share and compete with him for power after 1952, gave the following admonition to the British-sponsored Egyptian king, who had long been a feature of resentment and shame for the more nationalistically-minded Egyptian officers. Nasser's peer, Mohammed Naguib, sent the following message to Farouk three days after the revolution, when the king had already abdicated, to explain their original decision to remove him in the first place. Naguib wrote, In view of what the country has suffered in the recent past, the complete emptiness prevailing in all corners as a result of your bad behaviour, your toying with the constitution, and your disdain for the wants of the people, no one rests assured of life, livelihood and honour. Egypt's reputation among the peoples of the world has been debased as a result of your excesses in these areas to the extent that traitors and bribe-takers Find protection beneath your shadow, in addition to security, excessive wealth, and many extravagances at the expense of the hungry and impoverished people. 
You manifested this during and after the Palestine War, in the corrupt arms scandals, and your open interference in the courts to try to falsify the facts of the case, thus shaking faith in justice. Therefore the army, representing the power of the people, has empowered me to demand that your majesty abdicate the throne to his highness crown prince, Ahmed Fuad, provided that this is accomplished at the fixed time of 12 o'clock noon today, and that you depart the country before 6 o'clock in the evening of the same day. The army places upon your majesty the burden of everything that may result from your failure to abdicate according to the wishes of the people. While the power struggles between Nasser and Naguib were still to come, for the first two years at least, both men displayed a sense of unity and defiance, especially when facing down those foreign powers that possessed a vested interest in their country and the canal. Of course, there was no greater source of foreign interest than that found in Britain. Even with the departure of India, the old mindset was retained. Yet it was more than that. One member of the British Conservative government, headed by Churchill until spring 1955, recalled that the government was up against people who didn't see any need for us to give anything away anymore. There were little empire people there who even thought we should be extending the area of pink on the African map, and they were not negligible influences in the party or in Parliament. Bizarre as it may sound that the British government would consider the idea of imperial expansion at a time when decolonization was continuing across the world, we must remember that the progress towards independence for all former colonies was far from automatic or certain. There was no bell rung in the 1940s or 50s which instructed policymakers in Britain, or anywhere else for that matter, to move on from the imperialism of the pre-1914 or pre-1939 era. In a similar vein, think tanks and actual policy theorists in both Britain and France had maintained since 1945 that the only way for their smaller states to compete in the Cold War era was to retain and harness their old empires and use the prestige and resources that these territories accrued to match, or at least not trail too far behind, the dominant superpowers of the day. This mindset was what compelled the French to fight so bitterly and controversially for North Africa, as well as for Asia. These once great European powers believed that they weren't merely fighting for their old legacies, but that they were also fighting for the scraps at the great power table. In addition, it was Churchill himself who remarked that, Our standard of living stems in large measure from our status as a great power, and this depends in no small extent on the visible indication of our greatness, which our forces, particularly overseas, provide. Churchill, it has to be said, doesn't come off especially well from the Suez debacle, but the man destined to suffer by far the worst politically from that fiasco was Churchill's preferred successor and his deputy for the last 15 years, Anthony Eden. Eden was popular across the world as an arch-anti-appeaser, and he had made his name, retrospectively at least, when he resigned as Foreign Secretary in 1938, following the scenes at Munich. In 1952, Antony married Churchill's niece, Clarissa, who at the time of recording in September 2018 is still with us at the ripe age of 97. Longevity, of course, runs in the Churchill clan, and there were few greater examples of this than Winston himself, who resigned at the age of 80 in April 1955. 
In the three and a half years that Churchill had led the Conservatives since taking power from the Labour Party in late 1951, Churchill had led Britain through a changing world, yet it was one he faced with the same steely determination and veneration for the stiff upper lip as he had in the past. It is worth highlighting a particular event which took place very much behind the scenes of Anglo-American foreign policy and which involved the supporting of a counter-coup in Iran which placed their chosen highly conservative Shah back in power. The success of this operation seems to have persuaded Churchill that it was still possible and certainly preferable to intervene covertly in other developing countries, to effect a favoured change or to reverse a disagreeable one. Churchill and Eden, as Foreign Secretary, did have some contacts in Egypt's Free Officers Group, the collection of Egyptian army officers who would eventually lead the coup against King Farouk. When faced with this great change in Egypt, next to so sensitive an asset as the Suez Canal, Churchill intimated to the Americans that another Iran-style operation should be launched again, with the aim of bringing King Farouk back. Yet, President Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, had no intention of allowing another Iran to take place. As Anthony Eden was Foreign Secretary between late 1951 to spring 1955, before assuming the office of Prime Minister, we can see the difficulties he would have faced while under Churchill's shadow. A Tory through and through, Eden was a believer in the new theories of nuclear deterrence, which stipulated that there was no need to hold a great force in the Suez region when the threat of nuclear strike would do the same job. This idea was the antithesis of Churchill's approach, and we imagine that in the course of their private debates, Eden rarely felt comfortable or able to correct his mentor or to assert his position with much force. As far as Egypt was concerned, Eden believed that the Free Officers Group could be worked with, and he disagreed with Churchill that counter-coups should be launched so frequently. The best part of the Iran coup was that it remained covered up and classified. Another act launched so brazenly in Egypt may arouse suspicion and expose those secrets. Eden also suffered from ill health, recurrent bouts of liver cancer which would eventually take his life. As such, he was occasionally put down with an especially bad episode, and he was unable to speak for himself while he was in his hospital bed. While he was absent, Eden knew that Robert Gascoigne Cecil, also known as Lord Salisbury, filled in for him. Salisbury, the grandson of the Conservative Prime Minister at the turn of the century, very much saw eye to eye with Churchill, and he wouldn't challenge the great old man while Eden was absent. Essentially then, when Eden was absent, British foreign policy either stalled or reverted back to Churchill, who was only too happy to keep on leading in the early 1950s. After spending so long by his side, Eden did at least know something about how Churchill's brain worked. If he was going to oppose a counter-coup against the new Egyptian revolutionaries, he would need to propose a better solution to Churchill first. With this in mind, Eden began talking with John Foster Dulles, remember the American Secretary of State, in early 1953, and by March, Dulles had agreed to a Middle East defence package, which included a British presence in the Canal Zone, as it was called, to guarantee that the place could be made quickly operational in times of war. The solution did call for agreements to be made between Britain and Egypt over the size of the forces that Britain would field there, in the name of the defence of the canal during these dangerous Cold War times, of course, 
as well as the control London would be allowed to wield over the different stop-off ports along the canal's course. Dulles then left the Anglo-Egyptian negotiators to their own devices, and things quickly hit a wall. The Egyptians, who were led by Nasser, demanded total control over the canal during peacetime and of the military installations dotted along it. London returned in May 1953 to inform Nasser and the Cairo government that its stance and proposals were all unacceptable. So problematic did these Anglo-Egyptian problems seem to Washington, even as the Korean War, don't forget, was still being put to bed, that Dulles felt compelled to make a trip of the Middle East and Egypt. While he was there, he was shocked to encounter such an intense level of anti-British feeling from so many of the former colonies. So vehement was this sense that it persuaded Dulles that the British proposals for Egypt would never be agreed to by Cairo. The new revolutionary Egyptian government would never countenance a large British contingent on its shores. Dulles grasped the point that the Egyptian government wanted to be allowed to police such important assets as the Suez Canal itself. The foreign-owned, mostly British-owned Suez Company could do what it liked in economic terms, but Nasser, in Cairo, was determined to see the British leave and for London to put some faith in the new government in Egypt to keep the canal open and safe. Dulles voiced these observations to Eisenhower as he made his journey home, and this in turn compelled Eisenhower to write to Churchill in June with the idea that Britain should arrange with Cairo some private undertaking by Egypt that the base would be made available in case of general war. Churchill was deeply angered, viewing the American stance as a betrayal of the agreement only made a few months before in March, which seemed to guarantee support for a British presence in the Suez Zone. He wrote to the President of the United States on the 13th of June 1953, saying, In the hope of reaching an agreement with you and your predecessor, we went over all this ground before and agreed to make a number of concessions to the Egyptian point of view. Our object in these discussions was not to obtain military or financial aid from the United States, but only their moral support in what we hoped would be a joint approach to the Egyptian dictatorship. However, you decided to defer to Egyptian objections, since then we have been disappointed not to receive more support, particularly in Cairo, from your government, in spite of the numerous far-reaching concessions we made in our joint discussions with you. We propose to await developments with patience and composure. I should have no objection to your advising the Egyptians to resume the talks, provided, of course, they were not led into believing that you were gradually whittling us down, or prepared to intervene in a matter which the whole burden, not 1920ths, but repeat, the whole burden, falls on us, and about which I thought we were agreed. The letter went on for another few pages. By this point in his life, Churchill knew that his life energies were failing him ever so gradually. His eyesight at 80 was still holding up, but arthritis made it too painful to write, and he had great trouble walking around. It is possible then to imagine him dictating this letter to an underling as he sat with the customary cigar playing on his lips, sort of like what you would have seen had you watched The Darkest Hour and watched Gary Oldman dictating his letter writing to a subordinate. But anyway, however nostalgic that scene may have appeared and however much Eisenhower would have supremely respected the veteran statesman, 
the US president knew that it was unacceptable to simply wait and see when it came to Suez Canal negotiations. The region was too important to behave in such a way, and both Eisenhower and Dulles thus moved to persuade Eden, if they couldn't persuade Churchill, that it was time, as it were, to get real where Egypt was concerned. The problem with this was that Eden was in hospital recuperating, but en route to Washington on other business was Lord Salisbury anyway, so it was arranged that Salisbury would talk with Dulles about Egypt when he arrived. Salisbury gave the details of their meeting in a letter to the Foreign Office in mid-July 1953, which illustrates the differences between Washington and London when it came to the question of foreign policy. For that reason, more than anything else, it's worth detailing it here. Salisbury wrote, Dulles delivered a tedious lecture about the difference in outlook as between us and them towards countries like Egypt. There was a feeling in the United States that we still considered the right way to deal with people was to be completely stern and firm and to deliver a well-placed kick when they made difficulties. They felt that times had changed, etc., etc. I found this rather hard to bear. We had already offered enormous concessions to the Egyptians, and if our prolonged negotiations with them were viewed as a whole, it would be seen that it was quite unjust to describe our attitude as inflexible. I said that the proposals on the duration of the agreement and the availability of the base represented what the cabinet considered to be the limit of possible concessions. I recognised, however, that we could not ask the United States government to stand with us on every word and come of these formulae. What we did ask was that they should support the fundamental principles which were embodied in the formulae. This appeared to mollify Dulles's attitude considerably. He said and repeated that our proposals had the general blessing of the United States government. By this point, John Foster Dulles was moving on to what he believed was a solution to the problem of security in the Middle East. He was setting the groundwork for a defence league consisting of Turkey, Pakistan and Iran, among others, to keep communism out of the region and shield the likes of Egypt from any Soviet intrigues. The extent of this plan was not yet shared with Salisbury though, and he returned to London armed with a vague agreement which, in practice, granted British negotiators nothing much of substance in their talks with the Egyptians. Over the summer and into September 1953, talks stalled on a curious point. The British were demanding that the thousands of technicians and engineers necessary to run Suez be kitted out in their military apparel, but the Egyptians were adamant that all vestiges of militarism be removed. Of course, there was no real need for the British to cloak their technicians in military garb, since it didn't exactly make their job any easier on the ground. Yet, the symbolism was important to Churchill's circle, as it was important in a negative sense to the Egyptians. There is a sense of naivety and rampant nostalgia which pervaded much of British foreign policy thinking at the time. Churchill seemed to believe that London could just dictate to Cairo, and he became incensed when it emerged that she could not. An empire man through and through, Churchill never truly abandoned the image of Britain's empire covering a quarter of the globe. He never really accepted in his heart of hearts that Britain was being pushed out of the spotlight in favour of the Soviet-American rivalry. Even the appearance of names like Salisbury seemed to harken back to old times, when a tribal chief in darkest Africa was liable to having his village hit by a British steamer for the sake of British prestige. It was no longer possible to operate or think in this way, but as we've established, there was no automatic switch which forced these statesmen to think differently. Such paradigm shifts in policy 
could only be reached painfully and, as we'll soon discover, following a war. Next time we'll resume our analysis of the British negotiations with the Egyptian revolutionaries as we trace the path towards war. Until then though, my name is Zach and this has been 1956 episode 2.2. Remember to all of you lovely listeners accessing this episode in the regular feed that there's so much more to this story than what we've covered here. We've only scratched the surface on the Anglo-Egyptian diplomacy which spluttered and stumbled its way towards a limp military action and a political disaster. Anyway, I want to thank you all so much for joining me, and I really hope I'll be seeing you all next time for episode 2.3, where the Egyptian conniption continued to excite the British government for all the wrong reasons. No matter what you decide to do, whether you decide to visit patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up for a fiver of a month to access all of 1956 and everything else we've got in store, or whether you're just happy to be a regular listener and keep on being fit, thanks. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for listening. And thanks for just being you. Isn't that nice? Happy Friday. I'll be seeing you all soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.